To have faith in God is not a stagnant state. It's a journey. As a believer, we should grow in our knowledge of God and His Word. Walk with Alan Cutting and many other believers as together we walk the believer's journey. Well, aloha and welcome again to the believer's journey. It's nice to have you back for another week. Um, it's really kind of nice that we can still come into the uh, studio and record this and I can have guests and, and it's really, really been pleasant. Um, I have to let you know uh, we have a new uh, sponsor called High Tech uh, Discount Travel. So you'll see their little thing on my website and, and so forth. And uh, we have a banner. You'll see that when you see my guest behind him. Uh, we have a little pull-up banner that one of our sponsors went ahead and donated to our company. Uh, so And they're called uh, Trade Show Displays. So it's really nice to have that happen for us. And it'll help me in my office uh, when I do these at home instead of looking at a mess behind me. So anyway, today we're going to talk about healing the brokenhearted. And I think that this is such an important message and an important teaching because we have so many people in all walks of life, all areas of the world, and it doesn't matter if you go to a church or not a church, um, if you claim to be a believer or not a believer, we all experience heartbreak and we all live with some type of heartbreak. I don't know if there's anybody in the world, and there just might be, who's actually been born with a silver spoon, never had a problem, never had a scraped knee, never had a person die, hurt them, or whatever. I don't know. But most of us have experienced something of some kind of heartbreak in our life, and the way we deal with it and the way that society looks at us when we deal with these things or we don't deal with these things is tremendous. And there's a lot of people in pain, and there's a lot of people out there in not pain. And I think that we need to recognize that when Jesus was here, he comforted and he, he loved and he cared for those uh, who were in pain. He dealt with the people, and you could see his compassion. And even in the scriptures in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about God and his compassion and his love uh, for the brokenhearted. And so today we have our guest, Stephen Murphy. And uh, I'm going to... Um, Stephen, it's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Good. Really, I'm blessed to be here. And um, we actually <clears throat> cross paths uh, inadvertently all kinds of places and all kinds of ways. But uh, personally, this is kind of a, a really nice time. So let me read you and, and let you know what Stephen uh, does and, and what he's done. And, and it's pretty remarkable. I've got a long list here. Uh, I don't usually like reading long things, <laughs> but sometimes people do a lot. And it's, it's worthy of, of what they are. Uh, Stephen Murphy is the program director at Alamo City Treatment Services. Uh, Stephen is a licensed chemical dependency counselor and an advanced addictions counselor and with over 35 years of experience in training uh, with consulting and counseling. Uh, previously, Steve was the owner of Alamo Recovery Centers Incorporated, which contracted, contracted with uh, the state and county criminal justice departments to provide outpatient services as an alternative to incarceration. He was the president of the Bear County Treatment Coalition. He was a coordinator for Celebrate Recovery. Um, it's a Christian 12-step program that encompasses all forms of addiction. 
Currently, Stephen is the um, director of Positive Recovery San Antonio, the largest provider of drug and alcohol treatment providers in the South Central United States. Okay, and it's offering inpatient and outpatient services, and it's based on the 12-step and Christian counseling. Finally, he is the owner of the Addiction Counselor Training School, and he trains students to become licensed chemical dependency counselors. Stephen, talk to us. Um, I'm grateful to be here, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, uh, yeah, I have uh, been in recovery uh, personally uh, for 41 years. I just had my birthday on June 1st. Uh, it was important to me because I, I didn't think I was going to have a problem. My dad uh, was a recovering alcoholic. Um, he was he had alcohol problems till I was about 14 years old. Then he finally got treatment. He tried for about almost five years to try to get help, and was unsuccessful until he checked into residential treatment at Wilford Hall. And um, he passed away with 30 years sober in AA. Uh, the reason he got sober is because Grandpa got sober, and he had 28 years sober in recovery. Uh, my grandmother went to the family group, the Al-Anon program, and she went there for 43 years, uh, for 15 years after Grandpa died to keep carrying the message. And also, what, and what the other thing that happened, to, oh, my mom, too, she was also involved in um, Al-Anon and family programs for over 15 years until she passed away. Uh, halfway through my dad's recovery, but he continued to stay sober till he passed. Um, and uh, so it's been a legacy for me. And uh, as a result, I've got lots of family members. We're not supposed to really talk. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous, supposed to be anonymous. My family's like, tell anybody you need to tell. If it helps somebody, that's great. You know. So I've got aunts and uncles in recovery. I've got in-laws in recovery. My wife's in recovery. Um, and I just find that you know the, the lifestyle has brought me back to a better and a deeper understanding of my faith. Uh, I was kind of a, uh, most people who are in recovery have a problem with, with spirituality because they're mad at God because they prayed for him to make their problems go away. And I think we're just kind of spoiled that way sometimes. We think that if I ask for something, I get it. And I don't have to work for it. It's just fall in my lap and everything should go away. And when, he do, when God doesn't do that for me, you know, he's, he's a jerk. You know, and so, uh, but and so the thing is, is that you know, we alcoholics and addicts uh, struggle with lots of shame, guilt, depression, anxiety, fear—you name it. Any negative feeling they have, um, they try to fix by taking a drink or doing a drug, and that, that that makes them happy for a little while until reality sets back in because they neglected to take care of things and so on. And um, and uh, you know, I, I like seeing people get sober. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I do this too. I mean, it's a, it's amazing to watch people come in, arguing, fighting, you know, resisting it. And uh, you know, some people come in and, and do everything perfect and relapse the first day out the door after they graduate from our program. Other people fight it, and argue, and yell and scream and throw tantrums. And then what ends up happening is, is they, you know, they eventually like realize that you know it's like. They've, they've fought, they've, they've overcome every barrier they've, they've, they've been struggling with, and they decide, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. It makes sense now. So. You know, um, I think we might have, I might have mentioned this when I was talking to you. My brother, his name is Glenn, and um, anyway, he, uh, he's been in Alcoholics Anonymous AA for oh, about 30, I think he just got what they call a cake. They get a cake on their birthday. So he got his 30-year yeah. cake just yeah. recently. Yeah. And he's incredible. Uh, he, he's an amazing guy. He basically uh, spends a lot of his time. He, he does a lot of um, sponsoring. So he sponsors over 40 people in AA. 
the funny thing is if it, you're not serious, he won't take you or he'll let you go. Mm-hmm. So, and it's because he goes, I don't have the time for this. I want to deal with only people who are really serious about this. Yeah. And, and he is actually a well-known speaker and a sought-af speaker for all kinds of different AA groups mm-hmm. in Southern California. So he's, he's an amazing guy. Um, he does a lot of weddings now for people and does all kinds of stuff. So, um, and I'm not really foreign to uh, abuse or addictive behavior. My mom was an alcoholic. Uh, she now, she stopped quit, uh, drinking back in 1998, right. so she's been free. And I think that her problem was that, you know, she, she um, they told her she was going to die mm-hmm. if she didn't stop. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's different reasons why people quit, you know, uh, and probably different reasons why people get started. I was married to a, a lady, um, and when we talk about the brokenhearted, I'm going to share some of my, my things. And this is one of them. I was married to a lady who was uh, an alcoholic. And I think the reason why she turned to alcohol was her dad molested her when she was a child. And she was raped by a guy. And uh, she had all these things happen to her. And she went to her mother to talk to her. Her mother wouldn't listen. And so she turned to alcohol. And uh, she said she didn't care if she lived or died. She, this way it's a slow death and so forth. And that's kind of, you know, something I went through to understand somebody in it who was really close to me. All of my brothers and my sister all have been addicts of some type, whether it be drugs or alcohol. I have one brother who lives in Canada who's uh, a Christian, and he's broken it through the power of Jesus. Now, he doesn't attend any kind of uh, alcoholic, you know, or AA or any meeting like that. He strictly does it through the, through church mm-hmm. and so forth. But I have other... Um, I have uh, other siblings who also have the problem, has had the problem. Fortunately, I did not. Um, I, some of you know my story. When I was about 17 or so, I moved in with a pastor, and that was probably, as my mom puts it, my saving grace. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I got to learn what it was to be normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was a kid, and I was the older, oldest of five children. And when my father left, my mom, we moved several times. I don't know how many elementary schools I went to. I went to several. And uh, there was a point where she met somebody, and I would babysit not only all four of my siblings, but I would also babysit two of the other ladies. And my mom would go bar hopping and come back at night at drunk, and she would drive home drunk. One time we almost hit a pole, and I turned the wheel real fast because we're going to hit this pole, and we're going across the street as big as... Well, here you would say like um, San Pedro. It was a huge street yeah. and crossing. So when I did that, she kind of woke her up, woke, and she hit me and said, "Don't ever touch the wheel again." And I'm like, "I saved our lives," <laughs> you know. So the the problems and the stuff that goes on isn't just the people who are the addicts. It affects the people who are not. Mm-hmm. And um, I really think that uh, there's such a epidemic in our country oh yeah you know and i really wonder you know how do we really reach these people you have you're in charge of this uh 
company called Alamo City Treatment Services. Now, tell mm-hmm. us about that. Well, Alamo City Treatment Services used to be an outpatient program, but when Positive Recovery came to town, I did, they were they had more contracts with insurance. They had negotiate them, so I wanted to work with that because it was it's difficult keeping insurance contracts and things going. But they also had a good reputation. I checked them out before I interacted with them. And uh, that basically now is an assessment agency and a counseling office. Mm-hmm. Um, positive Recovery is a treatment program. It has a licensed clinic by the state. Uh, now, my license is under that one. And um, what we do is, uh, you know, we, we do like five levels of outpatient care, anywhere from one hour a week to two hours a week to four to nine to 20 hours a week. So those all, we have five different levels of outpatient care. depends on what the person needs. Um, and then we usually use, uh, we do education, we do group therapy. And when you talked about, like, the, the pain that people are going through and the heartbreak, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's monstrous. Uh, you know, in fact, one of the th- there are a lot of different statistics. Um, one of them is that 97% of the families in the United States are dysfunctional. 3% are normal, you know, and that means that makes them abnormal almost. <laughs> you know, but the other side is that, you know, it, it can be anything, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, uh, you know, uh, workaholism, um, you know, anger, emotions, depression, you know, psychiatric disorders within the family. And, and the thing is, is that it's almost like everybody, you know, we were talking about stigma earlier and, uh, you know, before we started. And it's like it kind of bothers me, but it has a lot to do with, you know, we, we worry about what everybody thinks, but we have to get over that. So we have to get help. You know, it's not going away without it. Um, yeah. And the other thing, we, uh, we that you know, the, the treatment field goes through all, you know, these little growth spurts every once in a while, and a new epiphany hits everybody. And one of the things that's happened in the last five to ten years is we've realized that, you know, it's like alcoholism is only a symptom of the problem. It, it, it's, it's a piece of There's something deeper down. And what we're finding is what's so deeper down with almost everybody is trauma. And the whole thing about trauma is it's, you know, I, I do a presentation on trauma and overcoming it and so on. But one of the things about it is there are like a hundred different forms of trauma. And what I mean by that is anything from, you know, from your, your goldfish dying. You know, it depends on, you know, how important that was to you when you were four years old. Or, you know, your parents getting a divorce and one parent leaving and then having to be under the care of one parent who is sad about losing the relationship or angry and vicious about losing, you know, just all these different things and then it could be you know someone passing away in your family that's really important to you a mentor uh, could be um, you know losses or uh, you know thinking that you have this certain blessing or skill uh, athletic injuries that you know stop your whole progress for the rest of your life you know as when you're in high school you lose your ability to be, go on to college and get that scholarship so there are all these traumas that happen to people and and growing up in dysfunctional families abuse neglect you know, um, and and even people who are trying to you know make a you know great living through you know wealth and and doing things that's great. The problem is, is that you know, uh, you know, I was explaining to people, it's like, you know, you, you, yeah, you give your kid every toy he wants. Problem is, I'm sure he would like to see you at one game, or one of his band recitals, or one of the things he's doing that you're paying for, which is great. But trauma is an underlying factor, and. The other thing, too, about this that goes into the counseling is, you know, one of the things I do at my office, since my mom and my grandmother and my spouse and all my in-laws, family is really, really important in this process. I mean, if family members are involved in recovery, there's a 20% chance increase of staying sober and staying wow. in recovery. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really important because we're, we both know what the deal is. Um, a lot of people, especially when I was working with adolescents, hardly anybody works with adolescents now. Uh, there, a lot of people are taking their kids to a psychiatrist and here's a pill 
you know, take the pill and you'll be fine. It's like that's a physical fix. The one thing that hit me a while back was um, that, you know, I used, I used to talk about physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. And all of a sudden one day it hit me that, you know, there's another component to our being and it all clicked. And it was um, like what it talks about in Luke, when it, uh, you know, when, you know um, what's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, emotional, mind, intellectual, soul, spiritual, strength, physical, and love your neighbor as yourself. And social. I didn't think social was a part of me because it's outside of me, but it is a part of me because it's like my, the people around me are the things like that pastor. I mean, when you moved in with that family at 17, that influenced your life tremendously. When I got into recovery, I got sober at 18. When I was at at Palmer Drug Abuse Program, um, you know, the, you know, I, we had activities and things going. Not that we had activities and meetings and things going on all the time, and that interaction helped me a lot. It gave me a new group of people to hang out with. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was seventeen, and to move into the pastor's uh, house, there was one thing he said. Because as a, as a sixteen, I, I just just became a Christian. I mean, I'm just totally brand new, and I really didn't know a lot about. Christianity because it wasn't brought up in the church. I really didn't own a Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was just given my first Bible um, by the pastor or one of the pastors. And um, one the one thing he said to me was, "If you're going to stay here, you can't come home drink drunk. You can't drink and come here." I thought, "Well, well, you know." And I would go to my friends and drink, and it was that's part of what you did as a teenager. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> however, I wanted to share ask something. Uh, it's something I've two things I've noticed about uh, situations. A lot of the people that I know who are drug addicts or alcoholics, I would say, in my estimation, about a hundred percent of them have low self-esteem. Oh yeah, you know. Okay, and um, and and the reason I bring that up because it's so important, in my opinion, of. Where do you take this, and how do you get the healing that brings you the victory over that low self-esteem? I mean, it's all part of not just quitting something, but also moving on. It's right. like it's like when I talk to people about, um, you know, when you want to fill in what God is like and, and what the Father is like, is like Jesus. We have these snapshots in our head what the Father is like, and a lot of us have this big ogre with a long beard and his big old hammer and. And we think of the Father like this. But when we look at Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, when you see the Father, you see me, then we have compassion. So we mm-hmm. take out the one, but we have to put in the other right. to replace it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see with this low self-esteem, you know, good confidence, high self-esteem. Mm-hmm. The other thing I, I've noticed is that with a lot of people who have an addictive habit, um, and I see this where they'll go to, uh, let's say, AA or something like this, and they'll quit drinking, but they'll pick up or start smoking or gambling mm-hmm. or sex oh, yeah. or something like this mm-hmm. to where – because it's not, it's not as bad if socially, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, but they, they replace it with another addictive behavior. Now, yeah. how do you see all that? Well, that's the there, – I think Eric Clapton, he's in recovery. Uh, and one of the things he said was um, – Alcoholics are egomaniacs with low self-esteem, and and that's, and that's the compromise that we make. And that's what I try to teach people to do when they're in recovery. Is like, mm-hmm. as a re- I have low self-esteem, I feel bad about not not me personally, but usually when I'm in recovery, and I feel bad about myself. 
because of all the things I'm doing. I'm lying, cheating, stealing, breaking laws, deceiving my friends and family, you know, stealing from work. I'm, I'm committing crimes. I'm drinking and driving, buying and selling drugs. Everything I'm doing is on all five of those parts physically. I'm destroying my body emotionally. I'm a wreck. I feel depressed all the time. I take a drink. I hope that makes it better, and it doesn't. Intellectually, I think I got the answer, but I don't. And I think I can stop anytime I want to, but I can't. And, you know, on and on and on. And then, uh, you know, socially, uh, you know, all my friends are lying, cheating, stealing, ripping me off, and I'm ripping them off. And then spiritually, it's like my drug has become my God. So my whole concept of life, it's holistic addiction, which needs holistic recovery. So what we teach people is, um, you know, it's like you have to trade out garbage for good stuff. God will do that with you. That's the amazing thing. That's what I love about him. He'll take my negative behaviors like the sins of the flesh versus, and he'll give me the fruit of the spirit if I work for them. Um, in fact, that's what step six and seven are about in 12-step recovery. It's like we, we step six is we became willing to allow, allow God to remove our shortcomings, and then we humbly asked him to remove our defects of character in step seven. And it's like, put those two together and get this over with. And it's like, no, are you? because, see, I'm not willing to get rid of some of the stuff I've been hanging on to so tight because it works so well. And it, but it's bad. It's like manipulation works really well, but it's like it's not a good thing to have in recovery. So the thing is, is to raise self-esteem, I've got to, and this is the thing that's cool about steps six, six and seven is when you look at them, it teaches you that recovery is replacement therapy. I replace in step one. I be, uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, food, sex. Gam- I mean, there are 180 12-step programs in the United States today. Wow. And I become willing to trade out my addictive behavior for recovery, I, my dishonesty for honesty, my my hiding and keeping secrets for admitting I have a problem. In step two, I trade out my insanity for sanity. I trade out isolating for interacting with others. I, I find out what they did that helped them. And as a result of that, they kind of help start boosting my self-esteem. Uh, you can probably just work up to step three and do okay. We call that the recovery three step. It's not going to work too well. Uh, some people jump to step 12, and it's like they start banging the tambourine. And it's like, hey, man, you need to come join me. I want my buddy back, you know, my party friend with me sober. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, it's like that doesn't, there's a whole bunch of healing that happens in the 12 steps. And I'm relating them to, you know, the same thing. We look at scriptures, too. You know, you can find it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. You can find it in, um, you know, a Psalm 51. Uh, you, all these things that, you know, like when David talks about his interactions with Bathsheba and the changes he had to make. The 12 steps are in there. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, you, if you look for them, you'll see them. Um, and that's what I'm writing a book about right now is, you know, trying to find, like, not just... You know, like Celebrate Recovery says, step one is in Romans, step two is over here, and step three is in Luke, and four, and they're all over the place. I'm saying, they're such a great idea, they're in one section. They should be in one chapter, you know, and I found it. And I found it, actually, I ended up finding it like 12 times in the scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament. But to raise my self-esteem, I've got to trade out negative behaviors and start practicing positive behaviors, and the peer pressure of the people around me, the mentor, the sponsor, the path that I follow, um, reading materials like the big book and the Bible. And uh, like I said, p- people in recovery have to kind of gradually move back into spirituality because like we talked about earlier too, they're, they're mad at God. They're like, why didn't you fix this thing? Yeah. Why didn't you make it go away? Um, the other thing too, I kind of skipped out of it too. I, I have like 12 different directions my head goes when we do these things, is that you know it's like they estimate, like when we talk about families, how they're negatively impacted, how they're brokenhearted. Um, the Al-Anon program, 
the 12 step codependence anonymous all those different 12 step programs they say for every alcoholic or addict they, every for each one there are six enablers so in San Antonio just for 12 step alcohol meetings we have 500 meetings a week in San Antonio if there are six times more family members who have problems we should have 3000 meetings for Al-Anon and codependency and Naranon yeah. and all those instead we have like 40 8% of families are involved in recovery. Hardly any of them do it. Yeah. When I was married to the lady I talked about, uh, she ended up dying. She drank too much and, and died. Yeah. Um, however, um, and we, I was still married. So it was like, you know, I, lost, I was a widower. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, well, I went to, decided to go to Al-Anon during those periods back in the 80s. And I actually stopped going because, uh, and I was told this is not the way it was supposed to be, but when I went, and you share, everybody seems to share their story, and when I shared my story, a good bunch of these people told me, oh, I needed to leave my wife because she's an alcoholic. And I thought, well, that's not what I'm going to do, and that's because I'm Bible-believing, that's definitely not what I'm going to do. And it had nothing to do with I'm not aiding her, you know, or supplying it's just a matter of they thought because she's selfish and i needed to be free in life and later after i stopped going i was told well they weren't supposed to do that and that's not how it runs so i kind of i didn't know that that's how it it was supposed to be now you mentioned um that well uh, celebrate recovery and it says here you're a coordinator of celebrate recovery Tell us what the difference is between your basic AA, which is a 12-step group, and Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step group. What's supposed to be the difference is that it, Celebrate Recovery is a Christian program. In AA, it, and tw- the 12-step programs are non-sectarian, non-denominational. They're about, you know, as it, you, I've had, in my, even in my recovery counseling program, I've had people of different faiths, no faith, atheists. I've had agnostics. I've had, uh, you know, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, uh, Jewish faith. Everybody. And and the thing is, is that, so what I do is I kind of keep it gentle, but I always, always also tell them that, you know, about 90 to 95% of the people that are coming to this program have a Judeo-Christian Old Testament, New Testament understanding of life. And I will be talking about that. Is that okay with you? And that's what I talk about when I went in my 12-step program, uh, when I went in my treatment program. And, um, you know, they say, yeah, sure. And, you know, most of them say, okay, he was a guy. We, we know he was a guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, we'll just, you know, you, if you want to talk about that, that's cool. I'm just, I don't proselytize or evangelize. I just tell them that this is what it is. And they gradually see, you know, their faith. And, in fact, a lot of people who are angry about, like, you know, I'm Buddhist. I don't want to hear that stuff. Okay, do me a favor. Could you cite one Buddhist teaching about anything? Uh, no. And, that, and that, so it's like, yeah, you're offended, it was, you know, but you don't have anything. You know, so I, would you like me to cite one for you? I'll tell you a story that's Buddhist. You know? So I, I, have, I have stories from all religions, uh, you know, different things that help with different parts of the program. But basically the difference is that you know, 12-step recovery and most of the other programs are non-sectarian, and, and celebrate recovery is people who want to say, Jesus is, it's not as God as we understand him or a higher power. It is Jesus, God, we know who it is. Now, the thing that shocked me is I thought that only Christians would come to celebrate recovery, but we have, you know, people have asked to become Christians and, you know, uh, know, given their lives to, you know, Christ and so on. So that's cool. And I, I I didn't think that would be happening, but some people just want to start there. The other thing is we really 
one of the rules is, you know, profanity is not allowed. And sometimes that does happen in, you know, some 12-step programs. And some people just, I just can't handle it. It's like, and you can ask them to mellow out on the profanity at other 12-step meetings. In fact, I encourage people to go, both of, you know, if you would celebrate recovery, go to, you know, AA meetings or 12-step meetings and, and vice versa. You know, get to know. I mean, develop your faith. You know, but so that's the main difference. But when you were talking about, you know, uh, you know, like, Get, divorce her um, or get rid of her. Um, you know, I think part of the thing that happens is, you know, it's like when I talk to people at their families, um, you know, like sons, parents, kids, whatever, uh, they have to set boundaries. Um, I had a, I had a girl that came to my program who, who was brought by her aunt from San Antonio. She lived in A and M in Bryan College Station. Her dad was a professor at A and M. And she calls her aunt in San Antonio. Mom had her mom had died from cancer, so she calls her aunt in San Antonio and says, "Aunt Mary, I need help. Um, Dad is drinking all day. He doesn't come home till nine or ten or eleven o'clock at night. He's always drunk. I'm making supper, doing homework with my little brother. We need help. Could you please come get us?" And so they didn't kick Dad out. They left. And what ended up happening is his dad's like, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah, and I mean, you're not there. It's a CPS case. It's negligence. And even though you're a college professor and you're a bright guy, you're not being very bright right now. Hmm. He ended up getting my program, getting sober. So a 12-year-old girl got her dad in recovery. And part of the thing is, is that you've got to, like, chip away, at, just like with, with, with alcohol and drug problems. We've got to chip away at our problem. We've got to exhaust. We've got to hit our bottom. We've got to come to the end of our, ourselves before we sit there and realize we need God. And, you know, like, back to the other thing about, like, switching addictions, you know, food, sex. You wouldn't believe the parallels and the connections that are there. I mean, a lot of alcoholics gain weight. A lot of, you know, codependents and family members gain weight. And part of the thing we found is that, you know, there, there are genetic markers that show that we have the potential for alcoholism. Uh, but on the other side is, is they also show that we have pro- we're going to have problems with probably other addictions too. And the main reason is because I am trying to fill a hole in my soul. And the problem, there's not enough food, not enough sex, not enough money, not enough power to make me feel okay. And the thing I try to tell people is, this is a God-shaped hole in my soul. And it's got to be filled by God. And so one of the scriptures I usually talk about with that is Matthew 12, 43 to 45. When an evil spirit leaves a person, you know, I, I straightened out. I, I stopped on my own. Goes out in the desert, can't find a new home, comes back to its former home and finds me empty, swept, and clean. Then it goes out and finds seven more spirits, more evil than itself, they, they, than, than itself, and they all enter that person, and that person be worse off than before. Mm-hmm. First time I read that to my, I mean, I read it and like, okay, and then okay, what's the answer? You know, it's like later on, you know, the disciples are like, so Jesus, what did that mean? And I'm like, nowhere. I mean, on the next thing I know, he's on the road to Capernaum, and we're not talking about that anymore. I'm like, oh, wait, what was that about? You know, <laughs> hang on. And what ended up happening was is that so I read it over and over and over, and then I sat there and I read it to my wife. I said, what does this sound like to you? And she goes, we're doomed. I'm like, no, no, no. Jesus doesn't leave us hanging here. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. And I, and I pray. I said, God, reveal what is this? And all of a sudden, it hit me. The empty spirit came back and found three things. He found our for, his former home empty, swept, and clean. And one of those is bad. And which one is that? Empty. You left yourself wide open for some yeah. more demons to come in. For And, and the other thing is, too, is that I, I'm also a recovering overeater. Uh, I've had problems with food since I've been 10, you know, 70 pounds, 50 pounds, gain and loss. Um, 
And so I, I, I've tried to do it on myself. I've tried lots of different. I can name a lot of companies, give them lots of credit here. Uh, and they helped me a lot. They, I lost 70 pounds doing one, you know, system plan thing and it worked out great the problem is is that it comes back after three to six months you know or a year you know and it, and i just didn't keep up with it i thought i got this now i got it and, and i don't but one of the things that happened was is that a strange thing i i don't think hardly anybody has ever talked about this before but one thing that hit me is is that i'm an alcoholic um I am. I crave carbs and sugar like you would not believe. I mean, thing. I mean, I do like the low, um, uh, low carb food plan like Atkins, Paleo, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, and keto. And, I, I, and on the induction phase in the beginning, you eat about twenty carbs a day. I primarily eat meats and vegetables, which is like what normal healthy people do. I, I thought that chocolate should be on top of every food group, which is not true. But um, <laughs> one of the things about it was that um, uh, I, I realized I, I wanted some mashed potatoes one day. And I thought, okay, I, want, I get 20 carbs a day, 25 carbs for half a cup. Corn, 20 carbs for half a cup. Rice, 20 carbs. Pasta, bread, everything I love is f- loaded with carbs. Now, this is the weird thing about the connection to alcohol. What is the base ingredient for rum? Sugar. One of my favorites. What is the ba- uh, what is the base ingredient for beer? Hops and barleys, grains to make bread. Pasta. Um, what is the base ingredient for whiskey? Corn. What is the base ingredient for sake? Rice. What is the base ingredient for potato uh, for vodka? Is potatoes. All my favorite carbs are the ground floor ingredient for making alcohol. Hmm. And I want all those. I haven't eaten carbs for three years now. Wow. I mean, I eat. Car- there are carbs in my vegetables and stuff like that. And, uh, I'm sure something has slipped in every once in a while, but I'm very vigilant and conscious about it this time to make sure that doesn't happen. But that just that kind of thing is like, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I don't think anybody, but people, I don't think anybody's talked about that ever. And I'm, I finally figured that out a little while back when I saw, saw the limitations on my food. Plan. Yeah. So. You know, it's. Um to share with you, we're, we talk about trauma, you know, um, and I know in my life, I mean, I, I experienced a lot of trauma uh, other than getting my head hit a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, my father left when I was nine. I guess he divorced when I was ten. I wanted to live with my dad, and um, I was unable, so I had to live with my mother, where my brothers and my sister got to go back and forth live with him, and I never did. So it was kind of a, a hard thing for me. I wouldn't say traumatic. I always remembered that all the way up into my 20s, you know, mm-hmm. against my mother. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was a, a, in a high school, I cut my arm real bad. I was supposed to go into football and be groomed to a, a really nice position. And it tore it up, and I just couldn't play it. Senior year, I get a seizure disorder, and it t- changes my whole life. I knew I was called to the ministry, but I was, became angry with God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had where I've been divorced. I've had where I've been a widower. Um, you know, there's these things that have happened through life. Um, not only that, um, my my grandmother, who I dearly loved, who wasn't sick, decided she didn't want to live anymore. So she stops kind of eating. She's getting a cold and thought, well, you know, let it go. And so she passes away in three days. Mm-hmm. She's like 93. My father 
who I was never close to, we said that, came to build a house for us and came to live with us for almost a year. And I be, we became really close friends. Loved. I mean, it was great. And he happened to pass out, fall, and die mm. right there in the other room. And so I've had this trauma, but it doesn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps coming. Right. I mean, it just keeps on going. Yeah. And um, so... I mean, my my answer is is Jesus. My answer is because He is uh, the one who has it, has my back. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and regardless of the things that happen to me, you know, I, I've learned to be strong enough within to handle those things that are outside of me. And mm-hmm. um, there, and that goes back to that pastor. His name's Lon. He who. Um, became like my surrogate father. He's my mentor. He's everything to me. Um, and the worst part of all of that is that because of the traumas and the things I experienced as a kid growing up, I made really poor decisions to the point where I hurt Lon, you know, in mm-hmm. my decisions. And um, it wasn't until I was like 35 that I really decided I'm dishonoring God. And... Um, and what I have to say is the fact that I already had um, up to the point of 1981. So I, 81, I have my master's degree in biblical literature, and, and I've already had it eight years of college, and it didn't fix anything. Right. You know, I'm I'm a associate pastor for six years. I'm a Bible teacher, and the problem is is that I could do all those functions. But within my heart, it was in turmoil. Mm-hmm. I read a book, a little pamphlet book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it talks about cause something which you talked about, about going through the steps, about Jesus who comes to my door, comes into my living room. And of course, it looks kind of okay. But then he wants to go into certain rooms where you've got a mess in your life. Mm-hmm. And he's there to open it and start to change things and fix things in your life that you need to get rid of and infill with him. And uh, even though not all of us are, are um, have addictive things we have, we still have those rooms in our yeah. lives that we need cleaned out and have him come in and fill those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, trauma isn't anything foreign to me. I'm just trying to say this. Mm-hmm. And I imagine I have family members who um, have a lot of the same similarities. Uh, however, the difference is, you know, where we take ourselves. I took myself, my, my best friend, he says, all the things that have happened and I keep on going and I don't give up and I keep on going and I don't, you know, throw in the towel. He says, you have more tenacity than anybody I know. I just don't give up. I just yeah. it's just keep on going. I learned that from my grandmother, I think, and my grandfather and Lon. I mean, the, the three of them were like my foundation for, for how to go on. I've seen many, many Christians, people in churches, who give up. Yeah. Who, who totally give up. I've seen pastors who give up or who start having affairs or who do things. And we think and we look at our leaders, our pastors, our, our teachers, our professors as, you know, they're immune, but they're not. No. And I think that it comes back to what, who really has the rooms in your heart, 
who really has, like in, in this 12-step, who really controls the step of that direct in that uh, area? Is that, mm-hmm. would that be okay to say that? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think it goes to, it's like I said, it's that holistic thing. And when I say holistic, everybody goes to Eastern, you know, uh, spirituality. It's, I, I'm talking about like, you know, it's like, it, you know, it, it takes mind, body, spirit, soul, and, and social interactions. And because like in step one, why would I get sober? Why would, or it, it, that's the other thing, the difference with celebrate recovery is it's about addressing hurts, habits, and hangups. And everybody's got those. So and so, whatever those little rooms are, whether it's trauma, whether it's you know a loss, a grief, you know a sadness, a depression, a, a fear, whatever it is that owns me, whatever it yeah. is that, that blocks me from a healthy, full relationship with God and Christ, that's it. And we all have that closet that's locked. <laughs> we all have that closet that's locked, and yeah. we don't want anybody going in there. It's like I watched this uh, um, show of Friends. Yeah, you know, and, and Monica is is. Compulsive, and she yeah. has this closet. And then I guess um, her husband uh, Chandler, Chandler tried to get in, couldn't get in, and broke in. And the whole and she's and she all about having everything in place, perfect. Everything opens this closet, and everything comes falling out. Yeah, we all have those closets. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are, yeah. or if you're in, you know, if you're addictive behavior or not. We yeah. all have those closets. Yeah, well, that, that's what I'm saying. Everybody tries to fix things with one little piece of their being. And yeah. it's like I said, you're, you're, if each of those things carries a fairly equivalent weight of 20% of your being, you know, physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, social, the thing is, is that me taking a pill and abuse to make me stop drinking, great. You're not going to drink physically. Yeah. Emotionally, what drives you to drink? When you, so People drink because they celebrate. People drink because they have a bad day. So whichever, you know, if you have a bad day or a good day, or if you're bored, you're going to take a drink. So whatever day you're going to have, you're going to drink because of emotions. Uh, intellectually, you know, uh, you know uh, that thought I remember now about that one thing that happened to me and like uh, I, I can't handle it So and, and, I, and I, don't, I can't talk about it, so it makes me drink. And I don't, all the people I hang out with, you know, they're not going anywhere doing anything. Or they're going places that are way beyond me, and I'm left behind. So yeah. you, we have all these comparisons. We do all the shame. A lot of shame and low self-esteem is about comparison. Who am I compared to everybody yeah. else? You know? And I think that moving into our, our topic about, you know, God healing the brokenhearted, um, I wonder if... You know, when I look at our churches, I wonder sometimes if we're really designed or we have the leadership that understands that we need to take those with these kind of hurts and direct them. You know, God, an example, Abraham is married to Sarah who has a uh, slave, basically, Hagar. Hagar. Yeah. And Abraham and Sarah just aren't having kids. And finally, Sarah gives her, her slave girl to Abraham and says, Here, have a kid. God promised you a child. Go ahead and do it. And she becomes pregnant, and they have a son. Well, in, in the story, how it goes, Sarah gets really perturbed, yeah. upset, jealous, and all the things, yeah. really upset, and kicks her out with the child. Yeah. And... The neat thing about this story is that you see Hagar, after she's left, runs out of water, runs out of food. She, the baby is sleeping, and she sits there and crawls under this bush, tree, or whatever, and starts weeping to God, mm-hmm. sobbing. Yeah. You know, and, um, she, and basically God 
saw her, felt for her, and basically gave her a promise yeah. that the son would not die, but he'll have a, a great, you know, um, nation. Yeah. Yeah. And then shows her where she can find water. Mm-hmm. So you right off the beginning. You know, you see that God is compassionate for those who are suffering, those mm-hmm. who are hurt, yeah. especially those who are hurt by other somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I could hurt myself because I do something really stupid and foolish. Yeah, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when somebody gets hurt because somebody else has imposed that. I really believe we, as His His people, God cares for. It. I mean, I've. There's a song I heard. It's actually a scripture in Psalms that, that says, "I've never seen the first um, the righteous forsaken." Right. So his own children, he won't forsake, and yet a lot of us fear because of our life that we've had from our parents or former relationships, however it might have been. We live in this fear, and we we don't come off and, and realize and feel like, well, does God? We think God. And wonder, does God love me? Yeah. Will He carry me through? Um, and, and we live brokenhearted. I mean, whether you fall into an addictive uh, lifestyle or not, yeah, we live brokenhearted. Yeah, there's a another um, counselor I've had on my show. His name is Gene Benedict. Do you know who that is? Yes, sir. Amazing, amazing man. I mean, I, I think that he, he's done so much for our city. But he, he's like you. He's got this long list. He, he told me one time, if the person, if they go through these, these things of abuse and they live this way, they have problems in other areas. Like they, they're almost impossible to become intimate. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean sexually. I mean intimate with people. It's hard to really connect. It's hard to really grow if you don't have that healing. Right. I'm assuming, because I see the scripture teach that there's healing. There's healing mm-hmm. in God. There's healing in Jesus. There's right. healing because he binds up our wounds. He looks, he's the brokenhearted and he cares. I'm assuming that your counseling and your teaching has a lot to do with binding up and healing wounds of that sort. Right. Okay. Yeah. Talk well, about like that. With positive recovery, it, it's kind of like a lot of people want to work on the problem. I need to fix my addiction. I need to fix my alcohol problems or my eating disorder. You can't fix that. What you can do is you can focus on the solution. And it's kind of like the same thing. It's like I, I need to stop being evil and stop being negative and stop lying and cheating and stealing and hurting people. I can't work on that. What I work on is I work on the solution, the problem. I mean, the the the, the, the you know, like I need, if I work on recovery – my addiction falls by the wayside. If I stay away from people who are using, I'm not tempted anymore. If I, you know, if I change my thinking that, you know, alcohol fixes everything or drugs or food or sex or whatever fixes everything, uh, then I start realizing that, you know, that I can do that. And and the thing is, that's God tells us. I mean, God warns us throughout the Proverbs, throughout, through stories in the scriptures about people who, I mean, even like there's alcoholism in there, there's drug addiction, not drug addiction, there's a sexual addiction, there's, you know, tons of different things, abuse, violence, you know, uh, you know, uh, and the whole thing is, he tells us there's like, 
Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a favorite for you know the clients that I have. It's like I know the plans I have for you, not for harm and but you know for you know healing and, and help and, and so on. And and same thing he talks about with, in Second Timothy when Paul talks about you know that, you know to you know that you know he, you know don't live in fear. You know just tons of different things. You know, and, and that's what we try to teach people too. It's like let's replace, like I said, six and seven, step six and seven. You know, replace the addiction with recovery. Replace, you know, me thinking that my, like in codependency with family members, my whoever whatever I think about the most in my head becomes my god. So if I'm angry at somebody, they be they're 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 god for me today. If I am trying to fix that other person who has an alcohol or drug problem or eating disorder or sexual addiction, they're my god. And it's like, and it, it distracts me from working on God. And and one saying that we talk about is, um, you know, hurting people hurt people. Wounded people wound people. It's kind of like you ever try to sit there and help a little animal out who's like who has a you know a thorn in their in their foot. And if you get close, they start snarling and you know snap at you and will bite you. And you know, so part of the thing is is that they don't realize that I can help. And so that's what we do to a lot of people too. So in our woundedness, we we keep on wounding other people until we heal that. And like I said, it, it may not just be a physical thing. It might be a, a new understanding, a new way of living, a new acceptance of God that He doesn't want me to live this way, you know. And uh, you know that that there's a better way to live. And and that's what I learned in the in the scriptures, you know. Through you know, I can't. I can think of hundreds of places we can talk about, but yeah, but you know that's what we try to teach people is that you know the way you've been living. I mean, one one answer I ask, one question I ask people is, okay, what's the worst thing that'll happen to you if you never take another drink of alcohol ever again in your life? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. But on the other side is, what's the worst thing that'll happen to you if you keep drinking? Like, yeah. I give you a tablet and you write four pages on that one. Yeah, you know. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there are a couple things that I, I look at, I teach, and, and one is that a lot of the things that we do uh, normally have a underlying core problem. And usually yeah. we do a lot of superficial hurting, a lot of superficial actions. Band-Aids. Band-Aids. And we cover their, our superficial situations with Band-Aids, mm-hmm. and we're not getting down to the core issue. Yeah. And, and healing, and I think... on. The basic problems and the core problems that we that we as human people have uh, are probably only those type of types of issues that God can heal. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, yeah. I really believe that, and I think that um, one of the, one of the things that I teach a lot of also is the fact that when we do stuff, you know, are we are we doing things? To honor ourselves, our situations, to back to the superficial life stuff, or are we doing things to honor God? One of the things that happened to me when I was 35, or 30, 35, somewhere around there, um, I realized that my life was going sour, and I realized I was really angry at my mom. But what I understood at that point, it took all these years to figure it out, was that I was dishonoring not necessarily my mom as much as I was dishonoring God. Yeah. Because it's, it's in the commandments that we honor our mother and father. And as we honor our mother and father, who are we ultimately honoring? Well, God. And I think that we Christians don't capture that, that idea of if I'm hurting so-and-so, I'm just hurting so-and-so. No, you're also hurting God. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that there's some underlying stuff here oh, yeah. 
that that we need to work on. I, I mean, their churches for decades now have been uh, hurting because of people hurting people coming in because of their nastiness, their lack of love, their selfishness. Mm-hmm. And there's underlying stuff there that they're just not being healed from. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think that God wants to heal us. In, in, in fact, it's interesting. In Matthew 11, 28 and 30, and I, I talk about this a lot because I think it's such a cool passage. When I was a kid and I listened to preachers when I was new Christian and as I went on listening to stuff, I always heard how, well, being a Christian is hard. It's difficult. It's, you know, all these things. And then I come by this, and I want to read this. Um, Jesus is talking here, and I'm going to walk through this a little bit. And what he says is that, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. So if you have problems, if you're stuck, you're really hurting, come to him. He's, he's beckoning us to this. And he says this, And I will give you rest. But he goes on, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. One of the problems we have is that people don't really dis- dissect that word yoke. Mm-hmm. We get people who say, oh, yeah, yoke is what you put on an oxen, maybe a second oxen, and one teaches the other, and then you go down the furrow, and that's how he just, he just does that. A yoke is a guidance system. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, put on my guidance. Take my guidance, okay, and you'll learn from me. And then he goes on, I am gentle and humble at heart. Mm-hmm. So if we come to him and he gives us rest, and we take on his guidance, if you will, okay, and we learn from him, everything is up. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, mm-hmm. everything is up. Doesn't how far down you are, yeah. everything is up. Yeah. And I like what he says as he continues, and I will find rest for your souls. This is a promise, mm-hmm. you know, for us. For my yoke, my guidance is easy. This really hit me hard because after all these sermons I'm hearing, oh, Christian is hard, Christianity is hard, being a Christian is hard. Jesus says, not a preacher, Jesus says, not a prophet, Jesus, my yoke is easy mm-hmm. and my burden is light. And I think sometimes we, we're like the guy who walks down the street carrying a big load of stuff. Yeah. Guy comes up in a truck and says, hey, would you like a ride? No, I don't want to burden you. It's okay. No problem. You can just get in. You know, you'll be fine. So the guy goes in in the truck and he carries his big bag of stuff into the cab. And the driver says, well, what's wrong? Take your stuff and put it in the back of the truck so you don't have to be loaded down. No, that's okay. I don't want to burden you. And we do this to God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we wonder why we continue with our problems. Yeah. And, and I'm talking to every Christian here. I'm not talking to those who are just, you know, with with uh, the problems of addiction. Everyone yeah. is like this. We all tend to do this. Yeah. And, and we need to understand he wants to take our problems. He wants to take our stuff. Mm-hmm. He wants to teach us and guide us and show us and tell us as he's doing it, it's not so hard. Right. I'll give you a rest. I'll make it easier for you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Would do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the big thing about recovery and 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 Christianity and, and is that 
I want to have a life that's better. I mean, the problem, again, I think that people do is that we think that it's going to be rainbows and unicorns and happiness and pots of gold and everything's going to be great. I, I think the hard part that, you know, when people talk about Christianity being hard is that it's hard for us to let go, just like what you're talking about. I don't want to let go of my stuff. I, I'm so used to this. In fact, step six and seven, where I, this is June and July. We always talk about this, which is like I ask God to remove all these defects of character. It says all, not not some, not the ones you already let go of. It says all defects of character. So why do they keep? Why do I have to keep doing this every year or two? Why do I have to keep asking for this cleansing again? Well, because what happened is is that I'm not flagrantly doing this behavior now, but I'm doing a little bit more manipulative, subtle, underhanded way of doing the same thing and I have to keep whittling those behaviors out and and they're just all protections for me they're just ways that I don't quite have to let God have all the control in fact one thing I asked me was like what is the what what is the difficulty in turning your will and your life over to God well because I don't know what he's going to make me do oh one story I had was that you know, I was afraid. I remember I saw Chris. Chris Moore was on your show. I've known Chris for a while. You know, I, honestly, not to be rude, but I was afraid that God was going. If I surrendered, totally surrendered my life to God, that He was going to make me be in a hot country without air conditioning, and I, I, I'm sorry, I just have a little bit of a problem with that. But, but the thing that came down to us is that you know, it's like I'm in a hot city, <laughs> but I do get air conditioning, but I get to carry a message. <laughs> but the thing is, is that you know, what one of my sponsors told, one of my mentors told me, he said, you know, God will make you desire that so that you will beg for the money to go do that if that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And and the thing is, I love what I do. I mean, I love what I do helping people. I love seeing people get better. And and part of the thing is letting go of it. And, but the hard part is letting go of my stuff. That he's That's what he's telling you. Let me help you. No, I got this. Let me yeah. do it. No, I want to hang on to my stuff. When I lived in uh, Maui, in Hawaii, um, we went to a small, little church, and lo and behold, uh, a couple come in with their two kids. This is Alice Cooper. Yeah. Okay. And his wife. And Alice Cooper is a missionary kid, and his wife is a Baptist. Her father is a Baptist minister. And so the two are, you know, there in, in that. So I recognized them right away. And so I went back after the service and asked them if they'd like to go to lunch. No, but here's my number. If you want to come over sometime, we'll, we'll get together. Yeah. Well, he invites us over. For dinner, so we're eating at his house, and a really amazing guy. I love this guy. His wife is just really cool too. I mean, it's just really a, a neat time. He finds out that I got some golf clubs, and he's an avid golfer. Uh-huh. So he, he finds out I have these golf clubs, but I've never played because I don't know how to play. I just go out with lawn, and we go hit the at the driving range. So he says to me, "What are you doing tomorrow morning?" You know, um, I said, well, nothing really. He says, "Well, why don't you come out? I'll teach you how to golf." So we go out to Wailea Golf Course, and and um, he's you know to, to, uh, he's teaching me how to golf. Well, before on our drive there, I decided to ask him some questions because I knew quite a bit about him, and I and I asked him. Actually, I said to him, "I understand you're really searching for God, but I have a couple questions. Why don't you give your life to Him?" He says, really, it's two things. He goes, number one, I know that my music is blasphemous, but I know it is my bread and butter. Okay, number mm-hmm. one. Yeah. He goes, and number two, I'm afraid that if I gave my life to Jesus, that he would make me be co- go to Africa to become a missionary where I don't want to go and don't want to do. 
And so I basically told him, God is going to make you do something like that, especially, you know, if you're if you're, you're adamant that you aren't don't want to do it. I mean, how how can you be, you know, how can you reach anybody like that? Well, come long story short, he eventually comes to Jesus and he's now a believer, which mm-hmm. is really cool. But it's back to that, you know. I don't want to give up. I don't want to do. I don't want to. I don't want to go this direction. Right. You know, something that when we talked about the Matthew thing, where Jesus is talking about, "Come to me, my yoke is easy," et cetera, et cetera. I think we need to understand that Jesus coming to Jesus is really cool because he understands what it is to be hurt and brokenhearted. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and his stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. He went through all this stuff. I mean, beaten, you know, tortured, put to death, all these things, all the things through while he was there trying to teach people about God and relationship and love and so forth. And he's being ridiculed and threatened and all this. He knows what it's like to, to have a broken heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, many people say when he died on the cross, he died of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. And so when we are hurting, it's not so hard to go to him, I think, because, or it shouldn't be hard, because he understands mm-hmm. personally by going through much... And much more things than I ever did. Um, and I want to end the, the program. We're getting late here. I've been doing this for the last two months. And I think that even though I've been have, I have a calling to, or not a calling, but I've, I've been calling out for people to realize we need a change in our country. Um, if you like Jonathan Kahn, I think he's, he's a guy that's been doing this also. But I think we need to go back and read Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. And it says this, okay? God says, When I shut up heavens and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, if my people pray, okay? So if we pray, who are called by his name, okay, and humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways... Okay, if we do all those things, then God says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And even though I've been calling this as something we need to have a change in our nation, I'm not talking about all non-believers praying this, but believers, we're called to do this. I believe this also pertains to us personally. I believe if there's a lot of us that want God to heal us, change us, do all these miraculous things, but we don't want to face our own sin. We don't want to be healed of our own sin. We just want God to do it mm-hmm. and make everything hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. But God has a plan right there in Second Chronicles. If you really want healing, if you really want victory, if you really want to get out of the stuff you're in and have this, then here's my formula mm-hmm. right there in Second Chronicles. And I really believe... Uh, even though, like I said, in the last couple of months I've been talking about this in all my teachings for the last couple of months, I believe it also relates to us personally. I really, really do. And I think that 
you know, it's been really nice having you on the, on the you. show. Um, I'm great. I, I hope this reaches a lot of people, but it, I think there's a lot of people out there who are hurting, oh, yeah. not only in the non-Christian world, but in the Christian oh, yeah. world, not only in the United States, but all over the world. I travel to Eastern Europe every year, and I, and I see the heartbreak, I see the heartache, and I see the stuff that's going on, and, and I know we're not alone in the United States. It's all over the world. Right. And I see we're close to the end times. If not, actually, we're in the end times because I see this happening globally. Yeah. But um, anyway, that's our show. And um, it's been a real pleasure. Same here. So, I'm very honored to be here. Thank so you. thank you. And we'll see you next week. I'm going to continue with my uh, other teaching on becoming like Jesus. So we'll see you next Wednesday. And aloha. And you have a wonderful week. Alan Cutting and the Believer's Journey radio program seeks to teach the Word of God in a clear and practical manner. For more information, please visit the podcast page at am630theword.com.